J&J has won a reversal of a $72 million verdict claiming its talc products caused ovarian cancer. It was the first of a series of jury awards against J&J in a St. Louis court, and it throws the fate of more than $300 million in other awards in the same court into question, as well as more than 1,000 similar lawsuits filed there. The lawsuit was filed by an Alabama woman before her death in 2015, and the Missouri Federal Appeals Court cited a Supreme Court decision in June limiting out-of-state plaintiffs from combining actions in a lower court. Joining us is Howard Erickson, a professor at Fordham Law School who specializes in complex litigation. Howard, explain why the Missouri Appeals Court threw out the award. Sure. The U.S. Supreme Court in June decided a case involving uh, an entirely different drug, um, but where the Supreme Court addressed the issue of personal jurisdiction, that is the power of a court to bind the defendant. And what the court said, essentially, is that plaintiffs have to bring a lawsuit either in the defendant's home state or in a state that the claim arose out of. So in the Missouri talc case, you've got an Alabama woman who had sued Johnson & Johnson, a New Jersey company, in Missouri State Court. And she was able to do that initially because she joined her case with a couple of Missouri plaintiffs as well as lots of other plaintiffs from around the country. But based on this new Supreme Court ruling, what the Missouri Appellate Court had to say is, well, the Missouri State Court simply doesn't have the power to render a decision in the case, in this case, between a, an Alabama plaintiff and a New Jersey company, given that it's not the defendant's home state and it's not a state that the claim arose out of. Well, clearly, this decision has is meant to try to stop some kind of forum shopping, as seen by the Supreme Court, where plaintiffs' lawyers try to pick a uh, you know a favorable place to bring a particular lawsuit. Was that the situation here? Why did they pick Missouri as the place to file this case? Yeah, I, th- I think you've said it exactly, exactly right. The, that it's quite common for uh, lawyers representing plaintiffs to choose what they consider the strategically most advantageous forum, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's that's what every good plaintiff's lawyer ought to do, and by the same token, every good defense lawyer should um, try to decide: is this a disadvantageous forum, and if so, um, should see if there are procedural avenues to get the case moved to a different forum. Um, but that is the baseline that the Supreme Court was dealing with when it decided the Bristol-Myers-Squibb case in June. And you're absolutely right. This limit on personal jurisdiction now makes it more difficult for plaintiffs to choose the forum that they consider strategically most advantageous. So, Howard, in four of the five trials held so far in St. Louis, the jurors awarded more than $300 million combined. J&J has appealed those. Are those going to fall the same way that this case fell? It seems to me quite likely that in the that in cases on, brought on behalf of plaintiffs who are not Missouri plaintiffs, and I believe all of those trials so far were non-Missouri plaintiffs, uh, that they're going to see the same thing happen. That the the court is going to say uh, Missouri does not have jurisdiction over Johnson and Johnson, a New, a New Jersey company, in those cases. And, and what, also, what happens just, then? Well, then, then the plaintiffs have the option of filing, uh, of refiling the case, either in the plaintiff's home state or some other state that the claim arose out of, perhaps where they bought the product or used the product or were injured by the product, or to take it to Johnson & Johnson in J&J's home state of New Jersey. 
So, Howard, you have J&J facing more than 5,500 TALC claims in state and federal courts in the U.S. How has it been faring? Well, so far, not so, not so good. I mean, the... Um uh, you know, most of the trials had come out in plaintiff's favor, but of course, most of those had been in Missouri. And this change in the forum shopping uh, regime is um, is a real plus for Johnson and Johnson. But the big news uh, at the end of the summer was the California verdict in Echeverria, where J and J was hit with a four hundred seventeen million dollar verdict in a California case. The company is now trying to get that overturned, um, and they've asked the uh, the court to either to grant judgment as a matter of law or a new trial, and that ought to be decided quite soon. You know, they've been one of the ways in which J and J is attacking these cases. They're saying that although there's some scientific evidence that's been put in, that it doesn't really back up the claim at all that uh, the talcum powder. Uh, has a link to ovarian cancer. How are courts treating their legal argument about the strength of the evidence? It's actually been quite varied. There was a, a New Jersey court that said there simply isn't the scientific evidence to back up the plaintiff's claims, and the court excluded the plaintiff's scientific evidence of causation. Um, but these other courts in Missouri and California have, have treated it differently. This is what happens when when lawsuits get out ahead of science. Science has the luxury of moving step by step, trying to find truth, but courts don't have that luxury. They've got a case between a plaintiff and a defendant and actually have to decide the case based on the science as it, as it is now. And in this case, you're right. The science is quite undeveloped and very much in dispute. So... Howard, let's talk a little bit about this is supposed to be a bell, bellwether cases so they can decide which to settle, what settlement amounts might be. How does it stand now with all these reversals? It does throw things uh, up in the air a bit, June. Um, you're, you're right that when, there are, when there's mass tort litigation pending, thousands of cases that are related, the courts schedule these individual trials with the hope that they will be bellwethers, that, that they will provide data points, jury verdicts that the parties can then use um, to set expectations in the hope that the parties can then negotiate some sort of global settlement. Um, but I do think that the, um, the risk of reversal in the cases so far changes the whole um, bellwether aspect of this and makes these verdicts uh, somewhat less valuable. Well, it does seem to make it harder for them to use them as bellwether cases, but might it sort of make it easier for Johnson & Johnson to settle all the cases on a more favorable, on more favorable terms? Yes. Uh, yes, and uncertainty is generally thought to um, be a good motivator for settlement. So the very fact that um, that the outcome of these cases is somewhat uncertain at this point strengthens uh, J and J's position. 
All right, Howard, it's a pleasure to have you back on the show. That's Howard Erickson. He's a professor at Fordham Law School. He specializes in complex litigation. That's it for this edition of Bloomberg Law. We'll be back tomorrow at 1 p.m. Wall Street time. Thanks to our producer, David Sutcherman, and our technical director, Chris Tricomi. Carol Master comes up next with Bloomberg Markets, and she's here to tell us a little bit about what's going to happen. We're going to talk about the Fed Beige Book, those headlines crossing the Bloomberg in just a moment. And then we've got to talk about robots taking over jobs on Wall Street. You better watch out, too. Uh, I know. For you too. I know. I have to figure out what to do if <laughs> anything happens with voices of robots. That's it. This is Bloomberg. <laughs>